back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valley Lightly and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, we are in mid-September and we are excited to welcome back um, someone who was on our show at the beginning of the year or towards the end of last year, Mr. Damian Mason. Yeah, Damian. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for having me. I don't know if I was supposed to talk right then or not, but apparently Val was, so I just screwed <laughs> the whole entire thing up. Well, I was just going to say welcome back, Damian, and we're excited to dive into um, a topic that's kind of been hot throughout this year on ag subsidies and some of the stimulus money that's been thrown around. But before we get there, Damien, go ahead and talk and give us your introduction of who you are and what you what you do. Besides talking to lovely women like the women of Millennial Ag, what I do is I have a few different business interests. Uh, I own some farm ground. I have a few little side business things that I work on. Um, and I just launched a new thing on an agri agricultural promotional uh, venture uh, with uh, one of the checkoff programs. And I have a business of agricultural success group, but largely I have been known as a commentary guy who brings comedic commentary to meetings for agricultural functions all over North America. So that's the quick story. Yes, I'm an agricultural economics guy. That was my education. I'm a farm boy. I was raised on your basic Midwestern dairy farm. And I, uh, I've had Catherine on my podcast a number of times because she's a great uh, bouncer offer. That's what I call her, a bouncer offer. <laughs> I throw stuff at her and she throws it back at me. And I throw it back at her and she throws it back at me. So she's good at all that stuff. So anyway, thanks for having me here, Val and Catherine. Well, thank you for coming back. We're excited to have you here. And um, it's always a pleasure to be on your show as well, Damien. And listeners, we'll make sure that you know where to find that in our show notes. So diving straight into it. Um, today, we are talking about farm subsidies. And um, we're hoping to give a little more nuance and perspective to what those are, um, as well as a good introduction to what, well, an introduction to what they are for people who might not be familiar for those listeners of our podcast. So, Damien, being the AggieCon guy that you are, tell us a little bit about, first about the history of subsidies, agricultural subsidies, um, or farm payments, and where they come from, please. So far, people get wound up. Uh, I live half the year in the suburbs of Phoenix. I live the other half of the year at my farm in Indiana. I travel around North America to business functions, or at least I used to before we all were told that uh, if you don't wear a mask, you're going to die. So um, I get a pretty good perspective on this from the other side. We in ag, and that's, I'm assuming most of the listeners to the Millennial Ag podcast are from ag, have this thing where we operate in our own little crucible, and we think that everybody else is there. They're not. Um, in fact, we within ag are in such our own little micro crucibles. The seed people are on their thing, the feed people, the dairy people, the beef people, the pork people, the cucumber people, whatever. <laughs> so anyway, it's important to understand that, um, you know, somebody said something really smart to me, Catherine and Val, when this thing was going on a couple months ago, three months ago, four months ago about the pandemic. I explained to somebody that I'm a small business person and I'm getting wounded. And I said, and you have a government job and you are not only not being wounded, you're being paid the exact same money. Your insurance stays the exact same. Your 401k stays the exact same. And all that changed for you was you don't have to go anywhere. You don't even have to do any work. So what we came to the conclusion was, no, we're not all in the same boat. So that maybe is the theme for this podcast when it comes to government payments. 
there are people in ag that will say things like, yeah, but you can't bitch. You know why? Because the government's going to bail you out. Well, that might be true for a cotton person or a soybean person, but then there's this other business entity that is not being bailed out at all. So the fallacy that we're all in the same boat, it's just like me, my business got wounded. Uh, a bunch of people I know, their business got wounded because of the coronavirus shutdowns. And then folks would say, yeah, but this is great. You know, uh, get $1,200 sent to me from the government. And uh, the government says I can't be fired. Uh, and I just play jigsaw puzzles with my kids. Hey, why are you complaining? I'm like, because we're not all in the same boat. And that's really kind of what you're talking about. If I was to give a theme to your entire discussion on government payments, we're not all in the same boat. Southern producers have been bitching for years that Midwestern dairy producers, I'm sorry, agricultural producers, make a whole bunch of money on government programs. And then there's folks over here in sugar that have been getting, I'm not being mean, the sugar people have been good clients to me, they get more protections than, uh, say, beef. Uh, beef is going to let imports come in from third world countries, whereas sugar has these protections that say, no, 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 you're not bringing in that old Brazilian sugar here. So we're not all in the same boat would be the opening stanza of uh, this entire discussion. All righty. Thank you. So tell us, tell us this year, um, you're the numbers guy. How, how much of net farm income is coming from direct government payments? In the year 2020, uh, the projection that was just released through uh, uh, USDA, et cetera, was that we look like we're going to bank, bank about $103 billion of net farm income. The thing is, $37 billion of that is coming out of the taxpayer dollars. We've had MFP, what do they call that? The uh, margin, I, I don't even remember what it stands for. There's so much alphabet soup when it comes to USDA programs. Right. MFP, which was supposed to be trade relief. Mm -hmm. Now, my ag people, Val and Catherine, get very mad at me and they say, Damien, it's all about trade relief. We started this trade war with China. And I say, no, let's really call it what it is. It's a subsidy based on the fact that we have a global oversupply, a glut of soybeans and corn. No, we wouldn't have that if China would start buying from us. I said, yes, you're right, because China clearly has not been eating for the last year and a half. They just <laughs> stopped eating. You know what they did? They went on a fasting diet for the last year and a half. That's nonsensical. Um, the reason we have low commodity prices is because we do have too much global supply. We've been in an oversupply situation for a long time, Reality is, from an economic standpoint, most countries would rather run an oversupply than an undersupply. Think about it. Food security, <laughs> have, it's national security, right? We have riots happening right now in Portland, and it's not because they're hungry, it's because they're mad or they have a political agenda. But by golly, uh, the normal folks in Des Moines, Iowa aren't rioting. If you starve them, They'll riot. So we generally, as a country and as all countries, try to manage for an oversupply situation. Been an oversupply situation, so the government started giving money away in 2016. I mean, they've always done it. The government has always been giving money to agriculture. And you can't say government because it's really taxpayer dollars, but we've been doing this for a while. It ramped up two years ago, maybe three years ago, with the MFP because what they said was the, uh, the China situation. 
what the projection is right now is that $37.2 billion is going to go to farms from the United States Treasury in one fashion or another. And that's going to be Catherine and Val through the normal USDA programs. And then, meaning normal, they've been there for a while. The new MFP, which has been there for two years. And then the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, because a lot of farms operate as businesses. So mix it all together, you get 37.2 billion. If it's 103 billion that farms are going to earn this year, a full on one third of it is coming from, a little more than one third of it is coming from taxpayer dollars. Where does that compare to the last year? Because the PPP was a big portion of this year's net farm income. What, what are the values looking like last year versus this year? See, it depends because they announce it sometimes, Val, and they say, we're gonna throw this much at it. And sometimes it doesn't get all done in a calendar year. So it depends on what you look at. There was the first tranche of uh, MFP money that was 16 billion and another tranche that was 12 billion. So part of the first 16 actually dumped in 18 and then the next part came into the 19. So we're still at a near record. We're still at near record water when it comes down to it. We're still at like, you know, high, high tide. 37.2 billion is probably going to be a record in real dollars compared to some past years. It just baffles me that there's that much money, I guess my taxpayers dollars being put towards this. And I'm, I'm a farmer, I'm a rancher. I work in the ag industry and I love to eat. Like, it sounds all great, but how we also have an abundancy of food, milk prices crashed. We have, you know, there's all these things that keep adding up. How do we, how do we balance this? Because I think we're national or food security is national security. So having an abundance is a good thing, but it also, we're producing commodities and we're doing it really well, but are we shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit? because we can do it so cheap and there's so much on the market right now. We have been managing for a surplus for a long time. In fact, about a hundred years, we never had a food surplus. Uh, if you asked, if you, if you looked around, let's just say right there pre-World War One, uh, which began in 1914, the United States did not get involved until 1917. We got out in 1918. So it's just over a hundred years. Uh, we had, uh, you know, uh, Ellis Island. So people are showing up here in troves. I mean, we just, we became this amazing country because we got people just loading in here and everything's going crazy. We also got the poorest of the poor. In general, rich people didn't come here because if you're rich and well-fed in Europe, why the hell would you hop on a boat and then risk everything to come here? So we took these poor people that were pretty well starving where they were from and we brought them here. And we invented this crazy thing called the United States of America. Well, by the 19 teens and 20s, we had just won World War I, and then we got so darn good because innovation came with the war effort, more so after World War II than World War I. But we got good at making stuff. And what we saw was, for the first time, probably in recorded human history, we had a surplus. You never saw that in human history for 10,000 years since we invented agriculture. 
you know, we're like gathering berries and like trying to not get stung by the bees and maybe trying to like knock a damn, uh, you know, tortoise over the head and eat it. <laughs> we're starving, right? And all of a sudden we invent agriculture and we're still pretty damn starving. And then all of a sudden we get better at it, better at it, but still not good at it. In 10,000 years of agriculture, it only has been good for the last couple of years, uh, centuries. We got good at it. So we had surpluses for the first time ever starting about 100 years ago. The government decided you're the most powerful new emerging nation. World War I has ended, 1918. Europe is in devastation. Europe had been the most evolved and developed part of the entire globe. And now they're just torn to hell. They've got, you know, buildings bombing, you know, smoldering, rubble, whatever. Who ascends? The United States of America. And we don't just ascend because we're not blown up. There's a bunch of things that come together. It's a confluence. We got our buildings aren't blown to hell. Uh, we got a melting pot of people coming here that are broke that want to work. They would work 100-hour weeks to make the economy go, and they did. And we got this amazing river going right down the middle of the country, and we got all this amazing farmland. And instead of making 30-bushel corn, by God, we learned a way to make 45-bushel corn, which is a spit in the wind today, but it was amazing back then. Everything came together amazingly, so amazingly, that we started seeing surpluses. The United States Department of Agriculture, which was invented right after the Civil War, going back to some more war history, right around the time of the Civil War, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Abraham Lincoln called the People's Department, meaning we're going to create this entity to feed America. It never really accomplished its goal until about 60 years later in the early mid, uh, you know, 1920s. That's why agriculture has come where it is. We, we, we wanted to have a surplus, never did. Then we did. An amazing a bunch of things came together. And by the 1920s, we finally had this situation. Then we got tested again, Great Depression. You're talking about 30% unemployment. You're talking about all sorts of bad, disastrous situations. The United States Department of Agriculture is being tested. Well, why in the world aren't you feeding these poor people? And then what did USDA do? Paid farmers to go out and destroy crops, plow down fields, and destroy, kill, not butcher, kill livestock. And humanity lost their, their mind. They said, what are you doing? We got people. Why did they do it? They said, if we don't raise farm prices, those farmers will not stay in business. If those farmers do not stay in business, we'll have no supply next year and the year after and the year after year after. So I can grapple with government decisions. And I think they generally do things wrong. However, in that standpoint, from an economic standpoint, they did the right thing. They kept farmers in business by limiting supply to thereby, if demand stays stagnant and you limit supply, what do you really do? You increase prices. Big history lesson there. I know, guys, I went a little deep. I went a little deep. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, dear listener to the Millennial Ag Show, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. We enjoy that history lesson that some things that we don't, you know, we maybe don't focus on 
um, too often just because we're, hey, millennials, and we think about ourselves in the future a whole bunch. So we appreciate that. But let's Well, I like history, and you know, the fun part of it is, and I know we're being funny here, and we're talking about our age differences, and Catherine and I, you know, we're better friends than Val and I are. Let's just face it. <laughs> Catherine and I, dairy farm people, we just, we, we like each other. It just happens. Val, you're kind of odd man out. I mean, it's a theory of three. When there's a third wheel, you're the third wheel. It's me and Catherine all the way, dude. It just happens. I guess I'll just own the third wheel at this point then and keep riding that train. But I do like Idaho. And I like this, people from Idaho. It is a great place. And there's a lot of dairy cows in Idaho, too. So, so you can't diss it too hard. Number five, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, number three now. Yeah, California, they've moved up. California, Wisconsin, Idaho, New York, Pennsylvania still. That's correct. Wow. It is. But coming back to the topic that we were on. <laughs> I'm a little bit ADD, dear listeners. So that was the number one through five dairy producing states in the United States of America because not one person in uh, Haiti would say Idaho is number three, but uh, yes, there. Okay. Well, yeah, and you might be tested at the end of this podcast. So, <laughs> all right. So we understand that um, back in the day, farmers were uh, paid to um, kill off crops, livestock, that sort of thing to protect um, the amount of food for that year and the coming years. That makes good sense. So how come now do, are we paid, I don't know if this is quite right, but we're paid to overproduce essentially is really what it feels like. And, you know, it might be because it's an election year and we're staring politics in the face every other second. Um, how does this, how does this play out for the American farmer? And is this a good long-term strategy or is this something that agriculture needs to look at and start to change? Yeah, so uh, you're never supposed to correct the host. Uh, they, they taught me that uh, when I went to be on Fox News Channel. You just said uh, one little thing you said about paying subsidies to protect the food supply, I think was the intro to this, the, the uh, segue. The way they did it in the very beginnings was they paid for destruction of crops to bolster to, to, to bolster prices by thereby limiting supply. Well, <clears throat> what we do still is a government mechanism, and I'm not sure I agree with it, but I'm just telling you how it works, where the United States Department of Agriculture monkeys with controlling supply. They want there to be enough of it that there are not riots on the street. We got enough riots over nonsense that's going on right now, blowing up cars in Portland and tearing down buildings in Kenosha. The one thing that would for sure happen, Indianapolis, Huntington, Indiana, where you live, probably not gonna ignite over some sort of tension. But if they're hungry, mm -hmm. if they're hungry and oppressed, by God, they ignite. So really crowd control is about food, food supplies, about car control and all that. So the United States and Department we, of Agriculture. We did kind of see that this spring when there wasn't a limited a supply, but there was a limited supply in the grocery stores at certain times of the year, which we saw panic buying, which caused- Right, so yeah, Val, Val's making the point here that uh, we didn't really, it's not that we didn't have adequate amounts of calories in a field or a feed lot or a dairy farm or a pork pen or somewhere in the country. It's just a, that given moment because of supply chain uh, crinkles, supply chain crinkles is what they were, we saw uh, a shortage. We learned something, by the way. We learned that uh, 
our very tight supply chain works amazing as long as everything works amazing, right? Uh, you throw a couple crinkles in there and uh, boy, you shut down three milk meat plants and then all of a sudden we got some people get panicky. So the USDA wants people to not panic and the government wants people to not panic. And again, I'm not endorsing any of this. It's just been the policy for a long time. Uh, a well-fed nation that doesn't have to panic over its food is going to be a peaceful nation. And if you're in charge, if you're in power, what do you want? You want to retain power. So uh, I know I sound jaded, but that's really part of it. What was the question here about uh, the damn economics of it, Catherine? Um, so now, now it feels like, or it seems like to us that farmers are being paid to overproduce or there's being you know almost floors being put into the market so that we will continue to overproduce food and as a result um there's no market value to that food and there's really crappy commodity price prices which then perpetuates the cycle into needing farm payments or something yeah, so then you're gonna then your only revenue your only actual net revenue your only profit comes from going to the fsa office at the united states department of agriculture uh county headquarters and signing up and that's probably true and that's probably going to be the way for a while however let's not um i know we got the little ag show Let's not pretend this is something new. This has kind of been the situation for a long, long time in American agriculture. Going back to the 1980s, one thing I like to point out is the PIC program. In the early mid 80s, they had a thing called the PIC program because we had produced too much corn. We'd also produced too much of everything. Milk, that was the era of government cheese. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole thing of the government was buying milk, making it into cheese, because the idea is, as Catherine knows, because she's a dairy farmer, for every gallon of milk you buy, you can cook that down into cheese and you get rid of a whole bunch of, what is it, four to one, four pounds of milk. One. Huh? Ten to one. Ten, ten pounds to one. of milk to make one pound of cheese, yep. Ten pounds of milk makes one pound of cheese. So you burn through ten pounds of milk, which is a little over a gallon, dear listener. It's about 8.4, 8.6. 8.73 pounds of milk uh, makes a gallon. And so you burn through a gallon and a eighth uh, to make it into a pound of cheese. So that's very good economics. It's not really good economics because what you're really doing to your bigger point, you're keeping inefficient producers alive. You're keeping folks that would, if you just said laissez-faire economics, let's just let the chips fall where they may. Well, the reason we don't do that is that somebody, whether it's political or economic, and it tends to be a mixture of both, said, no, let's keep those people alive and let's buy their milk and let's keep them afloat because we need them to make sure that we always have an abundance of food and agriculture, which is really what the whole gist is. Always have an abundance. Do we keep producers afloat that should go bankrupt? Well, what's the word should mean? You know. <laughs> More, more like would, would is the right word, would go bankrupt. And then there's this concern, if you let that happen, after three cycles, you have three players or four players or five players. Now, what's interesting to me is we allow this to happen for just about everything. There's four airlines that control 82% of every air mile flown. They are United slash Continental, Southwest, American, and Delta. Word is... According to my airline people, we're going to lose one of those four. We're going to go down to the big three. If you grew up when I grew up, there was the big three of automakers, Ford, General Motors, Dodge, Chrysler. We tend to let everything go down to big three economics 
but we don't on food production. We will even on food processing. There are four big meat processors. They are Tyson, Cargill, uh, JBS, which is a South American company, and Smithfield, which is actually China-owned. But those are the four big in the U.S. We'll allow it at a certain level, but it seems that there's a tremendous reluctance to allow that at the production level. Tremendous reluctance by the government, by producers, by everybody. Why? Therein you bring the most interesting question up because certain producers, if you are of scale and you don't even really benefit from the government payments, which is a question that we're going to get to, you'd say, screw them, let them go. I can compete. Mm -hmm. And then a reluctance on Main Street consumer who has no clue. In the suburbs of Denver where you guys live, there's some clueless consumer that's sitting down to dinner right now. And they believe in this family farm. Whatever the hell that means to them, they've heard it so many times they just believe in it. They don't even know what it means. But they know that it's something that's worth protecting. And then there's the politics of it. If you are Chuck Grassley, the senator from Iowa, it's been around for a hundred years because remember they're all career politicians. Uh, you've got to be able to go and say, and I'm protecting family farms. I'm protecting family farms. What's that mean? I don't know, but I'm throwing money at it. And that's what it comes. So it becomes a little bit of everything. It's at the consumer level. It's at the uh, political level. And it's even at our level, us and ag. We say this, if you're down the road from somebody that is better at it than you, you either try and get better or you just bitch and say, huh, yeah, see, I, I ought to get more subsidies because I'm not as good at it as them. But you don't say that. Instead of saying I'm not as good at them, you say they have a competitive advantage. They did this or this or this. And so it's at our level also in ag. It is, and it's interesting to watch it play out. And I think you know, this plays, this plays more into a question that we have as well, which you, I think, probably come across quite often in your speaking audiences. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of moaning and complaining about these programs in production agriculture. You know, that industry got more than we did, or that guy down the road got more than I did, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, agriculture being generally conservative as we are, you know, um, Generally, that's a pretty broad statement, but generally conservative, you would tend to think would maybe not be in favor of what we're going to call government handouts right now, except for when it comes time to protect you and yours or to go down to the FSA office and collect that check. So the guy down the road shouldn't have it, and you don't think anybody should have it, but if he's getting it, I'm going to get it too. So you're talking about, uh, okay, there's a few things. In economics, there used to be a thing they talked about the free rider program uh, problem. Um, okay. If, if we three, let's just go ahead and throw Val out again. Because I think <laughs> it's important. I'm just getting a beating today from you, Damien. I think it's important to throw Val again. If, if, let's just say my girl Catherine and I decide we're each going to put in $20,000 to create a marketing program for our milk right here in whatever county. Oh, there's a third dairy farmer. And her name is Val. She doesn't really like us that much because she's kind of mad at us. And she thinks that Damien, you know, is a little bit of a pecker. And this, this goes on, you know. And, and she was at a cocktail party once where Catherine, like, uh, you know, insulted her dress. So what does Val do? Val says, I'll play along on this dairy farm thing. But you know what I'm going to do? 
they'll put in 20 grand each. I'm going to just not put in anything because I'm going to just benefit from their effort and their investment. Therein lies the issue with commodity production. Commodities are sold on open market. Now it's not that way with poultry and pork right now because those are generally integrated, vertically integrated entities. However, there is still at some point a true price of a pound of pork, a pound of poultry, a gallon of milk, uh, a bushel of soybeans, whatever. So let's just say Val is a free rider. We invested the money to promote our product and do this. And we went and did all the stuff and she's going to get all the benefit and put in nothing. So that's always been an issue in agriculture. And it's a bit like what you're talking about, me bitching about the neighbor doing this. Remember that small dairy farmer down the road from your parents, Catherine, who bitches that your enterprise is too big also benefits from your parents putting into the checkoff program mm -hmm. when they go and uh, make sure they uh, secure certain legislation that is not going to be punitive to them. So that small operator benefits from that large entity in many ways, but they never see that. Well, they, they, they never admit that. They see it. <laughs> they don't admit it. So we've always had this issue. And, you know, I'm as guilty of as anybody, maybe to a certain degree, I get $3,000 a year for conservation reserve program money. And I call myself a libertarian. So on my farm, I've got a few acres out here that are in a conservation program and I get $3,000. Not being arrogant, is $3,000 going to change my life? Probably not, but I'm willing to take it. And so while I call myself a libertarian, I also signed up for the government's conservation reserve program. Now, the difference between that being a true handout and what it is, it is a lease, meaning I have to adhere to certain standards and I'm supposed to plant trees and do this and this with the grasslands and the wetlands and all that. But I, I understand it. We all are stuck in this game. And then what your real big picture uh, discussion is, I know I'm being long-winded. The more government programs are created, the more you have no choice but to join in the games. Uh, and that's the bigger thing. Uh, you can say, well, how can you bitch about it? Then you join. I'm like, what choice do I have? If you want to be a farm operator in the United States of America, you about got to adhere to USDA uh, games, standards, programs, et cetera. It's interesting that you say that. I was talking with my dad um, earlier today because I wanted to get his his opinion on subsidies. And we we talked about this very topic. And he said, you know, it's almost, it's so incredibly hard to turn a profit in agriculture these days as a true production agriculturist, because you've got the big ag corporations, name off who you want, um, who are skimming some off the top. And then there's the next, the next level down. And then there's the co-ops and there's the, you know, all of the industry organizations. There's everybody who's taking money from the farmer and he's not getting paid in the marketplace. And so you almost have no choice but to participate in government programs because maybe, maybe they can try to make up a little bit of that deficit no matter how you feel about it. It seems like uh, for some commodities, the only margin, the only actual profit margin is the USDA. Uh, brother, one of my brothers, I've got multiple, um, but one of them that I like uh, is, um, uh, works for the United States Department of Agriculture. And, and he was on my very podcast, my own podcast, the Business of Agriculture podcast, um, which some of your listeners probably also listen to. And he said, it was instructed to him, not instructed, let's say conveyed, at some point in his training, 
you've been there 30 some years. Our role here is to keep these people break even. If they can figure out a way to make a profit, good. But our role here is to keep the food supply coming. Now, I don't know who said that to him. It's just what he told me he was told. And I don't think that that's wrong, meaning what he was told. Do I think it's wrong from an economic standpoint? The laissez-faire libertarian guy in me says, let him go, let it work out. But again, we know that that's not been the case for a hundred and some years. So I guess, you know, we're talking about this added money that we're putting in the market. We want to secure all this food, but where's this money coming from? We're saying taxpayers, but it seems like the country's in debt right now. Are we printing money? Where is it coming from? And is there going to be a consequence there because we're spending money we don't have to keep a food supply going? Val, interesting point. Adequate uh uh, thought has been put into this by you, me, and everybody else that actually understands economics. And the problem is most people don't understand economics. Economics is a science. It's also about feelings because remember economics is about human decision-making and humans make their decisions almost always emotionally, not logically. We can say things. Why do you think politicians get elected? They promise a lot of stuff and they say things like, we're going to fund this and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then the person like me, that's been a small business operator says, how the hell are you going to pay for that? We're at 20, what? $8 trillion worth of debt. It's a number that you can't even imagine. You can't even understand it. You can't even comprehend it. You know what $5,000 is, right? Because you've laid that down for a car payment or a, a down payment. Or you know what, even $50,000 is like. Large ag operators, you know, we're talking about Catherine's operation or the guy that rents my land, a $3 million acquisition, you can get your hands around that. Tell we me can, what the hell $27 trillion looks like. I can't even count that many zeros. That's what I'm saying. So once the number becomes so big, they become unfathomable. Even for intelligent people like us that are in business. And once it becomes like that, then it becomes shall we say, uh, <laughs> now inconceivable, but also then irreparable, irreparable, because it just keeps going. Now it becomes, well, why wouldn't we? When the whole discussions are going on between the Pelosi crowd and the Schumer crowd and the Trump crowd, and I'm not getting political because it doesn't even matter. They said, well, we wanted $3 trillion, and they only want to go to $1.5 trillion. So what's an, effort? what's an extra trillion and a half? What's the difference between a trillion and a half? The best way that I can ever explain this was a, a smart discussion I had with somebody once that talked about, say, an athlete. It, it don't matter, anybody. Say, say some of us that are not poor. I said, well, that quarterback, instead of making $26 million, is decided he'd take 20 What the hell's the difference between 20 and 26 You know the difference between $20 million and $26 million? The difference between zero dollars and six million dollars. I have never lost my farm boy sensitivity understanding that these billions are throwing around here and there have consequences. And so I think it, we're in a real bad way and we have spent ourselves into a problem. Article last week in the Wall Street Journal that we are now at the highest amount of deficit spending in terms of debt related to our uh, total economy 
debt related GDP than we've been since World War II. We've, we've now surpassed that. So to defeat Japan and Germany and the Axis powers that were dead set on taking over the world, we went into hock. This time we did it because uh, grandma got the flu and uh, we let everybody just not go to work. And we decided to go ahead and throw $37 billion at agriculture. I think it's wrong. I think it's gonna be really, really wounding for us as a country. Alrighty, so trying to spend our way out of a problem. And yet a third of net farm income is coming from the government this year. And you're saying it's not going to go away anytime soon. It's going to be hard to wean ourselves off of that. Well, there's probably a lot smarter people in terms of government policy. I don't, I don't sleep in Washington, D.C. much, Catherine. So do I think it goes away? No. But are there other people that think that it will? Here's why it won't. And I want to point out, I wrote down when you were beginning the show about Trump buying votes. Um, I, maybe, maybe not. Don't care. Don't matter. Trump already has the ag vote. <laughs> so, so that's like me, you know, my wife and I've been here for 25 years. You know, the thing about a sure thing. Um, I don't really need to uh, pay Lori and take her out for uh, uh, fancy nurse to make sure that she is going to have uh, sleep in my bedroom tonight. She's probably going to do that. And I'm not being, uh, you know, wacky here. I'm just saying at some point, the ag vote is pretty well in on Trump, not to mention where the ag vote happens, where it happens. Okay, California has an ag vote and they're outnumbered, 1 million people to 39 million. He can get every one of them, it ain't gonna matter. Nebraska, he's got. Uh, Indiana, he's got. Uh, so it's, it's a ridiculous notion. It's not about buying votes. I think it was more about just throwing money everywhere. Remember, we threw a lot of money at a lot of places beyond agriculture, and it wasn't to buy votes. Maybe it was, but I'm concerned about it. And on the ag side, when we have to finally, if we ever have to finally adjust to a marketplace that doesn't pay us, there's going to be a meltdown in agricultural operations. But remember, they were still throwing money, guys, in 2012 and 13, the record, record years we've ever had, look at the charts. They were still throwing government money at ag when agriculture was killing it. So I don't think it goes away. I'm sad to say, but I don't think it goes away. Well, and it's just, it's fascinating because we, we talk about ag being conservative voting for Trump, but they're also taking these handouts, but then are saying no to handouts when it comes to somebody else. And so it comes, it this makes a big circle about if my neighbor gets it, then I'm going to show up, but I'm not going to say that we're doing handouts. So it's just heading into the political season. At what point does ag say enough is enough or do we keep riding the bandwagon and, and making sure that my family farm can sustain the next generation, even if it is off of a third of our incomes coming from the government. You'll get people mad. Uh, and I do because we, we state facts. And if you say, which I'm sure I'll get some hate mail from this, but that's okay. It's just facts that, uh, you know what? We are the first people to line up and say, well, we oppose welfare. 
And we say that when we're in our F-250 driving to the FSA office to sign up for a program that the uh, gal at the FSA office called and said, hey, make sure you get in here between now and October 30th and get this signed up so you can get this free money. I'm like, free money for what? Oh, it's this new program. Oh, I'll be damned. I didn't know about that. So there are those realities. And as Catherine and I discussed, where the average consumer and my neighbors in uh, metropolitan Phoenix, where I live half the year, will say, yeah, but those programs, they all prop up those big factory farms. And as Catherine and I had discussed, that's a big misnomer. They prop up small farms because they put income limits on it. I am not uh, at this threshold, but I do know that I have to go in and sign off a thing that says I did not gross $900,000 from my non-farming business to be eligible for my $3,000 I get for CRP. Now, that means that if I did have a thriving business and I grossed over $900,000 of adjusted gross income, I would not be able to get my $3,000 for CRP. And here's the deal why that's a screw job. The CRP contract would remain the same. I still had to take those acres out of production, plant trees, prairie grass, and put in wetlands. So what did I do wrong other than I just made money? doing my other business. They do the same thing with farms. Guy that rents my farmland makes too much money. He caps out on the subsidies on uh, payments oftentimes. And then it gets to where you have to play small just to be able to play the subsidies. So we do keep a lot of smaller enterprises afloat. I'm not going to say, oh boy, they should be broke. I'm just also going to point out that if we're talking about dollars per bushel, dollars per gallon, dollars per pound, why is it that we then limit it after a certain level? Because it's all about production, right? No, it's not. Interesting food for thought there. And, you know, we could talk about this for the rest of the night and still barely scratch the surface. Um, we appreciate you coming on our podcast again. Catherine, and the same reason, by the way, there's a graduated income uh, tax if it's supposed to just be so much percent of an income, a certain percent is a certain percent, but why did they graduate it? Because it feels better to uh, pose somebody at a certain level. And so we're just as guilty of it at the US Department of Agriculture as we are at the IRS. So no throwing uh, rocks in glass houses, right? <laughs> uh, no, I'm just saying we know how this works and, uh, and we should get after it. By the way, you guys are awesome. I talk a lot. <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on and talking a lot, Damien. Uh, before we sign off for the night, where can listeners find you? And please tell them also about your new business of Ag Success Group. Thanks a lot. So DamienMason.com, you can see it right here behind me, uh, right over there, that side, DamienMason.com. And also uh, launched a new thing called the Business of Agriculture Success Group. And it is a consortium, a community, if you will, uh, for business outlook, advisory, and networking for ag professionals. You can sign up for that at DamienMason.com also. We meet twice a month and we get together and discuss big picture ag stuff and also offer some business advice along with uh, outlook. So it's uh, it's been a good time and Catherine's part of it. So. You're awesome. Val, I feel so bad that I mistreated you. I mean, <laughs> what am I, what should I do? I mean, I should, I should. I think you owe me a beer or something. Probably that. <laughs> Probably that. All right. Next time we're in, next time I finally get on an airplane and come to Colorado, I suppose. Okay. I'll hold you to it. Uh, 
Thank you, Damien, again for coming on. And we can't wait for, for the next discussion. And listeners, uh, be sure to send us a message. Tell us your thoughts. Um, you can email us at talk to us at millennialag.com. We're also on all major social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, we are Millennial Ag. Mm-hmm.